Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Searching the Sacred. This is Jason, Steph, and Lisa, and we are excited to be bringing you a special summer bonus episode. But before we dive into this episode, we just want to give a little highlight of what's to come. This past spring, we wrapped up season six, and we are anticipating season seven starting in the early stages of October because 40 Orchards will be having a booth at the Evolving Faith Conference in the middle of October, and we are going to be launching our season just as that conference gets started. So be on the lookout for season seven coming in early October, where if you listen really closely, we're going to be talking about women of the Old Testament. It's going to be awesome. So with that said, that's coming up in the fall. And this is a special bonus summer episode. And we're going to be talking about the parable of what's been traditionally called the prodigal son. Now, I got a feeling by the end of this, that is not what we're going to be calling it, but that's where we're going to start. And so Lisa's going to read from the First Nations translation the story of the prodigal son, the forgiving father, or the whatever we're going to call it by the end of it. The First Nations translation has a different titling. Beautiful. Uh, a story about two sons. Creator sets free is Jesus. Um, and this is a continuation of what Jesus is already speaking. There is a man with two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me now my share of what is coming to me. But the father, who was good-hearted and loved his sons, divided all he had with the two sons anyway. Not many days later, the younger son took his share and went far away to another land. He began to spend it all on wild living and soon had nothing left. The time came when there was not enough food in the land for everyone, and he found himself poor and hungry. So he went to work for a rancher who sent him out to feed the pigs. He became so hungry that he wanted to eat the husks he was feeding the pigs, but no one would even give him a meal. Soon the younger son came back to his right mind and said to himself, Look, here I am naked and starving, but the servants who work for my father are well fed. I am going back to humble myself to my father. I will tell him that I have dishonored both him and the spirit world above, and I am no longer worthy to be called his son. I will ask him just to let me be a hired servant to work in his fields. He then made up his mind and began to go home. While he was still far away, his father saw him walking. The father's heart opened wide and he ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have failed the spirit world above you. I am not worthy to be called your son. But the father ignored his son's words, turned to his servants and said, Go, find my best regalia and put it on. Give him a headdress of feathers for his feet and new for his head and new moccasins for his feet. Go get the fattest calf and prepare a feast, great feast for a celebration. This is my son. He was lost, but I have found him. He was dead to me, but now he is alive. Then they all began to feast, sing, and dance. Now the older son was just returning from a hard day's work in the field. 
He heard the music and dancing. So he asked one of the servants what was going on. The servant told him, your brother has come home and your father has prepared a great feast for him because he is alive and well. Hearing this, the older brother became very angry and refused to go into the lodge. The father saw him brooding outside, so he went to him and urged him to come in. The elder son said to his father, why can you not see? I have worked hard for you all my life and done all that you have asked of me, but you have not even given me one small goat to have a feast with my friends. But when this son of yours, who wasted all you gave, gave him on sexual favors with women, comes home, you kill the fattest calf for him. My son, he said to him, you are always close to my heart and everything I have is yours. But it is a good thing for us to celebrate with glad hearts, for your brother was dead, but now is alive. He was lost, but now we have found him. I don't know if we said it was Luke 15, <laughs> like 11 through 32. <laughs> so um, there are so many things to talk about in this passage. Perhaps a good place to start is just sort of listing all sorts of things that rise up for us, either like traditional interpretations. Um, Because one of the things, maybe I'll say this, one of the things that can be hard about something like a familiar passage in general, but particularly with a familiar parable, is it can feel hard to kick at it. It can feel hard to see it other ways than we've already seen it. And so perhaps for us and our listeners, if we just start to name some of the ways we've already seen it, it gets those on the table and allows us to see more. Um, because the hope of a parable is to see more. So what comes to mind real quick is like things that people, sermons or whatever else is highlighted for us about this passage. I feel like one of the things that gets highlighted that I don't always think about, or at least in seminary, they highlight like this is a part of three. It's not a standalone story. Like it's often, I feel like this parable in and of itself is taught as a standalone, but it's really a part of three stories. And that is important in how Luke is telling a story. Hmm. Yeah, we'll need to talk more about that because there's the sheep, lost sheep and lost coins, and then there's the lost son. Well, and I think it begs the question, who's the lost one? Hmm. Right, which maybe is already taking this a little deeper than the what's the casual reflection that we've heard over the years. <laughs> um, I think this the older brother gets overlooked by the story of the younger brother because we live in an age where the idea of evangelism and someone feeling lost and now found or feeling like they've gone the way of the world and now they've come back to church. And so we celebrate that more than we dive into the complexity of why is the older brother disgruntled? Why is it so, you know, why is that where the parable ends as opposed to ending with the return of the younger brother? So I, I think we, have often focused on the younger brother's return and more than anything, the the forgiveness of the father, which we often equate to the presence of God in the story is, is in the presence of the the father. That's kind of what the traditional, I guess, interpretation is, which I guess most people listening right now would be like, yeah, duh. Like what else (laughs) is there? Um, And I think that's what we are saying when Steph says like, we're trying to kick at it a little bit is, well, what if that isn't, the only interpretation? What if that isn't the only way of viewing this passage? What else could be um, wrestled with here? Well, and and I love you talked about that verse 32. I think that's been a very commonly preached written sentiment statement, even if people don't know where it came from of this, your brother was dead and has come to life, was lost and has been found. 
I mean, that language is in amazing grace as a hymn. It's like, we use that language a lot. It comes from this parable. Um, and so that's a common thing. I've heard a lot of emphasis over the years placed on the father running, like when he was still a far way off. Like I can think of many, many messages that have emphasized that moment when he was still far way off as like a, a key point of this parable. So I get. Yeah. I've preached that message bit. multiple times. I, I mean, if there are two phrases in this story that have always stood out to me or have recently stood out to me, it's that while he was a long way off, like there's this sense of like, a longing or a looking or an anticipating or a hoping or wishing that is in this story that to me is so exciting about the nature of belonging that it's it's looking for you it's not it's not waiting to punish you it's not looking to ignore you that there is something about like this longing for what what's drifted away or intentionally left to come back and i think that is really beautiful and then i also love and I think maybe Rob Bell points this out, but the the story to the older brother is everything I've had is yours. And so when the older brother's complaining about, I never get anything. And then the father's response is, are you kidding? Everything I have, everything is yours. Like you've had it, you've had it all along, like is, is essentially the message. And I think that is those two ideas of while he was a long way off and everything that I have is yours are two really beautiful sentiments that I've I've really been drawn to over the years with this parable. So let's start kicking at it a little bit more um, and think just, just pause to think about what a parable is. So um, one thing is that parables were not invented by Jesus. Um, we think of them as being unique to Jesus, but it was, it was a Jewish method of teaching. Um, it was called a mashal. And so it becomes a rabbinic way of teaching. If anybody's familiar with like Hasidic rabbinic works, there's they're full of stories that have these sort of questions in them. And, and you're, the idea of those stories in this way of teaching is that you're left with multiple ways to interpret it and that you are left frustrated by it. So the idea of a parable, when Je- if you look at the when Jesus teaches in parables, it's almost always what he's doing for a crowd. Because if you think about a crowd, they are there for multiple reasons and they walked there and they're going to walk home. So the idea of a parable is to give people something to talk about on their walk home. And part of how you do that is you get something to stick under their skin. So one of the things we'll talk about in 40 Orchards is if we don't find something irritating or frustrating about the parable, then we're reading the parable wrong. Mm-hmm. That we, because a key element of a parable is that there's something frustrating or irritating about it. I love that you use those words frustrating and irritating. I've always used the word disruption, which uh-huh. I think works as well. But frustrating and irritating are more personal, which I think uh-huh. is actually better because, like you said, if this is meant to be like something that you talk about, I don't really talk about things that are a disruption as much as I would talk about things that are irritating or frustrating. So what you can then can think about if his audience is primarily Jewish and they hear a story about a father and two sons, we think through the biblical narrative, what's going to come up for that audience? There was a father who had two sons. Abraham with Ishmael and Isaac. Okay, we have, let's, let's list them. Abraham has Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac has 
Jacob and Esau. Isaac, Isaac has Esau and Jacob. We have Adam going. and Cain and Abel. Adam has Cain and Abel. In those stories and more, who is preferred? The younger. The younger son. Who then comes to represent the people of Israel? The younger son. The younger son. They are, they are, so Jacob is the younger son and they are the people of Jacob. Isaac is the younger son. Isaac is the younger son. They are the people of Isaac. Yeah. And Abel so now, is the one that's righteous. Cain is the one that's not. Right. So we have a people who have read the scriptures and learned to identify with the younger son. And Jesus does what with this parable right off the bat? The younger son's a jerk. Okay. The younger son is the one being disruptive to the family system. And he's, and there'd be a quick association with his listeners to a younger son. If they're hearing there was a father who had two sons. So then we can, we can think about us. Does that shift anything for how we hear it? If we would have been a part of that crowd, if we would have heard something that we associate with, and then it says, the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the inheritance that that's like the second thing. Like what would happen in us? How would we feel? I mean, it's about as disrespectful to your parent as you can possibly be because you don't get an inheritance until the person's dead. And so by demanding it in that moment, you're basically saying you're dead to me and I want it now, which goes against like so much cultural understanding of you know, honor thy father and mother. <laughs> well, except I'm going to push on that a little bit because yeah, if we think about it. those biblical stories, what happened with Jacob? He asked for the blessing before. Yeah. Isaac. He asked died. for the blessing before Isaac died. And then he had to run away from his father um, because of the context of all of that. So he got his blessing and he ran away. That's what Jacob did. Yeah. A lot of leaving. There's a lot of this trajectory. There's a lot of leaving in the story. Abraham heard this call of God and left his father, Terah. Terah was alive when Abraham left, if you follow the genealogies. And in some ways, the younger son asking for it doesn't feel as off as, like, say, the older son being the one that's like, I want to leave. Like, this younger son is expected to leave. And would you leave without anything? Like in some ways, I'm like, well, it's not. I don't know. Like, (laughs) I feel like, um, I, I don't know if this makes me an ass or not. I'm trying to figure out if I say, (laughs) but like, I don't know that it would be. It would my mom be offended if I was like, if if we were a family of means and had a lot of things that were being inherited. I like. In some ways, my mom actually starts to think about like, I kind of want to give this out. I want to get rid of this. I don't need to hold on to this. It's time to pass it up forward. Um, if there was just a crap ton of money sitting in the bank, if I was like, hey, mom, I'm like, we're in dire straits or like, hey, we're going to buy a house. Can you help us buy? A-? I think and I don't know, like, I don't exactly know the cultural faux pas of biblical times, but I'm. I want, but I do feel like if I was hearing this story, 
I would not think, oh, that's me. I would think, oh, that's that guy down the street. He did that. He's somebody that would. Is it shocking because it never would happen? Or is it shocking because you're being asked to jump into the story? Is it shocking because it's rude? Or is it not shocking yet? Well, okay, that's, my that's a great is question from Lisa. Yet? Yeah. Yeah, because because we've been told exactly what you said, Jason. I don't think it's not rude. That's not wrong. But the emphasis has been placed so much on the rudeness that it causes us to say, oh, this is the moment that's shocking. Well, maybe, except there's a lot of stories in the Hebrew scriptures about inheritance and about leaving and about like maybe this feels in line with the story of brothers and fathers so far. Yeah. And especially because, to Lisa's point, the younger sibling traditionally not in the biblical narrative, but traditionally in patriarchal society, it's the older sibling that inherits the household. The younger sibling just gets a share of the inheritance and can go live wherever they want. And so there's a way that that's sort of, it's not great, but it's not necessarily shocking. Um, in, in Luke 12, 13, just back a couple chapters, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said, friend, who set me to be the judge or arbiter over you? And then he like talks about greed. So there seems to already be some conversation happening around inheritance, around splitting things. Also, the, the father does not, is not like, absolutely not, you rude thing. Like the the instantaneous response is the father does it mm -hmm. which then i'd have to think about like what or is this actually a critique on the father <laughs> okay well and notice too in verse 12 so the father divides the property between them which means what has happened this is like obvious but not obvious who else got an inheritance in that moment the older brother. The older brother. So when we're thinking about both characters of the story, this in this moment, when the younger brother asks for it, the father divides the inheritance between them. He does a really, he's fair. And he gives it to both of them. If that has happened, who then should be in charge of the household? The older brother. One of the two brothers. If he's dividing the inheritance in theory, then he's also stepping down yeah i mean unless he's just i mean it depends on how much we read this on the surface versus like because i mean there's a there's a way to say like okay i'm gonna divide this up so that i can cash you out and, you know like and then you can go and then we'll retain this because you know and i'll keep running it until i'm gone and then just give it to your brother so like i mean there might be a way to like maybe isn't turning it over to the older brother. Maybe he is just, you know, given. Well, it, it adds, a, it shares an interesting question with the older brother's response, because if this was divided between them, if all of his property was divided between them, then whose fattened calf was it that was killed? Well, the older brothers. The older brothers. <laughs> if this actually happened, if this division actually took place, What does that say about the end of the parable, about the father's actions, the brother's actions, because it's technically not his dad's stuff anymore. Right. Well, and there's something to be thought of, like, if you divide it up now, you're, you're limiting the ability for that plot of land, that group of cattle, whatever it is, to generate more wealth over time. 
So like the actual inheritance would have been much greater if you have kept it all together and it could have accumulated Mm. bigger and bigger and bigger. So that way with the inheritance that's handed down, you know, 20 years later is actually a much larger inheritance if the younger brother doesn't demand his half of it or his portion of it at this time. And so the older brother, yeah, not only is it his resources that are potentially going to support the younger brother after he squandered his, but it could have been a lot more resources had they not been divided up so early. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really Western perspective. I'm mm-hmm. not exactly sure what that means. You mean I they just... didn't have compounding interest for their <laughs> investments? I mean, come on. <laughs> or, well, or that like, is that the prime, is everybody operating under the idea that like the accumulation of the wealth and power is the ultimate goal? Like I know that the world we live in, that's uh, yeah. Who has the most? I'm just curious if that's true. I mean, obviously there's some of that stuff is happening, but is that like what the, is that what the father's thinking about? Is that what the son is like? All the sons are thinking about. Um, I feel like it's a little bit. Um, it reminds me a little bit of like farm conversations. So like some of the conversations, like my family has a, there's a family farm. Uh, which someday will probably be really complicated. And, but what we know is true is that the price of land fluctuates greatly. There are times where that land is incredibly valuable and there are times where it is not. And so the timing of things matters. Um, if you talk about selling the land, you like, <laughs> and it's always a question. It's a huge, it feels like it's a gamble no matter what time you're at, because it could suddenly like double and triple or you could bottom out. Um, so I, I kind of wonder if it's volatile like that, like, like are the, number of sheep the number of cat like is everything like ebbing and flowing because maybe the land is like maybe there's not a lot of rain and so then i don't know like i i'm curious how volatile it is and it's an interesting question that actually makes it really personal for me lisa because my grandparents were farmers and um which i don't think comes up as much because like you're you're from farm more than i'm from farm (laughs) um but i do have farm in my blood too but are you saying I'm more farmish? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> well, I I didn't grow up near the farm. I would I mean I would go to the farm for holidays, but I didn't grow up in the same town as the farm. It was a 30 minute drive, which is a different experience of a farm as being in the farm community. Anyway, it was a farm community that was near Milwaukee and it was near enough to Milwaukee that business parks started coming up around that area. And what that business, there was a business park sort of creeping in on my grandpa's land. And what the business park owner decided to do is in a year of drought, made an offer to buy all of my grandpa's land, but allow him to live on it for, I think it was five more years. My grandpa was desperate for the money at the time, and it felt like a good deal at the time. And he took it and he regretted it after that because it wasn't the right he his land increased so much in value by the time he actually moved but it was predatory the business park knew what they were doing for when they offered that money and the value of the land 
which makes me curious if this younger sibling even is being a bit predatory. <laughs> like what if, what if there's a sense that he has of like, oh, this is the right time to take a share. I'm going to take it now so that it doesn't go down. And there is enough, right? Like in some way, like this family is not decimated by the half or the third or whatever was given. Like, however, the father split it. This family still has a lot left. They are still servants. By the end of the story, we're still having a party with a fattened cat. Like we're, we don't exactly... If, yeah, there feels like there's a, there's, there is abundance no matter where we're landing in the story. That, that is really worth pointing out, Lisa. I don't know that I've heard people talk about that either, that even though this happens, the thought, the family's not decimated. So, okay. Then where's the disruption or where's the frustrating part? Cause so far, if I'm a, I would imagine if I'm the first century Jewish person, like you haven't said anything that's like really that frustrating yet, because all you've said, all we've said so far is that younger brothers often ask for an inheritance early and they get it and they go off and they leave home. And so where, so what's, so yeah. So like, and I I know there is frustrating here, but what's the frustrating part that, that they squander it and they don't become the actual next leader of the family because that's what we see happening in most of these other stories. Isaac becomes the next Abraham, you know, Jacob becomes the next leader of the, of the, you know, of Israel. Do you want, do you want my answer on that one? Yeah. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. I have a very, I have a very, okay. In fairness, I have a perspective on this that I hold from the get go on this parable. Um, But I think it's in verse 16. And I think it's the tail end of that. And I think it's the fact that no one gave him anything. Say more. Well, we oftentimes get really struck by the idea that he squanders everything. That this guy, he is spending money on, well, I mean, sex, drugs, rock and roll, essentially. Like, right. Like he's. Hey, don't throw rock and roll into the mix. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's this way that we read this story though. And we're like, he should have been a responsible human being and should have spent his money this way. And therefore sucks to suck. You can go ahead and like, good luck. Good luck. You've done it all wrong. And um, I just, I think that's how the world operates. And I think it's how we view people who, are struggling um, with addictions, how we view people who are incarcerated or coming out of incarceration, how we view people who are um, housing insecure, um, food insecure. In lots of ways, we view people that way and we go, well, did that to yourself. You made some really shitty choices. Mm. So there you go. Sit there mm. in it. And I, I think it's worth a pause in this parable to look at, this unknown character that we never talk about, which is the community. Like yeah. all the other people that could have played a role in this young person's life. Yeah. Right. Like when he's with the pigs thinking I can eat what they have. 
there's, yeah, there's just something in the reading of this story. Like I just, I hear it over and over again when I hear that story of like, look at the bad stuff this kid did. And like, I don't know a story. I, I don't know. I know we struggle with the idea that people squander money and throw it away and then they want handouts. But I just, I wonder if this could point to something different. If there's a pause in there that we can look at, can we make some space for like the humanity of those choices? I, <laughs> I've squandered some money in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love that, Lisa. That's really beautiful and hard. Well, and even when we judge his choices, I'm thinking like I've, this is new to me today as we're reading it is like as I as I make that connection to the stories that have come before in the Hebrew scriptures, Abram left his family and went to a distant land. He was told by God to do so in Genesis 12. That's a huge foundational element to what it is to be a part of the Abrahamic faith is that he heard this lech lecha call, go, go for you out, leave everything you've ever known, leave your family, your native land, your kindred, your father's house, and go to the place I will cause you to see. This guy is leaving his native land, his kindred, his father's house, and going someplace. When he goes to that place, he encounters a famine. That's exactly what happened to Abram in Genesis 12. He leaves everything he's ever known, he encounters a famine, and he goes to Egypt. When he goes to Egypt in that desperate situation, he decides to allow his wife to be a part of Pharaoh's harem. Do we judge Abram for that? The way that we're judging this son for like what happens when you're in famine and what are you doing? So he's, he left, he went to a distant place, he encountered famine and he enslaved himself to those people and he lost everything. There's a way this is sort of going back in the story. And I'm really, it makes me curious. It makes me less frustrated. It makes me more curious, actually, of all the parallels there are in this younger son's story to mm-hmm. the Hebrew scriptures that I haven't really spent time on and wonder, like, how would that have caused a reaction in people? Would they have been glad about that? But now if you're comparing this guy to Abram and Abram's with pigs, like, that's an issue and nobody's caring for Abram. That's an issue. Like, who is this younger son supposed to be in the narrative? Is it supposed to be Jacob, who, when he left everything he'd ever known, was cared for by Laban, but he was also squandered by Laban? <laughs> mm-hmm. But, like, the younger sons who've left before have encountered difficult situations, but they also received care. And so mm-hmm. that's a really curious insight. Jesus is speaking this to like a crowd of people. He's not just speaking it to like leadership. Right. I mean, there's like, there's like both and there. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's Pharisees and scribes are listening. There's notorious sinners and tax collectors. It's kind of like, basically like all the people were here. Right. If, if Israel is meant to identify with the younger son, there's a question of like, who's caring for you? Right? Is anyone going to see you in your difficult place? And in the first century, they're under the boot of Rome. And so they're in a tight spot. They're in a hard spot. And who's caring for them? And it's almost like there's an identifying with them being not cared for. And then a critique of the religious leadership who's 
supposed to be caring for them, but is not letting them back. Mm. And that's maybe the older brother. Mm. Yeah. And even so the, um, I think that was a great taking us back to the first two verses because we didn't read those as we weren't reading the whole context of um, parables often give our, the way they're written, it gives us a little bit of knowledge about who's being talked to and what the context of the parable is. There's usually a question that Jesus is answering through the parable. And so it says the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to hear him and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So that grumbling seems to be a part of the context of what it is to welcome sinners and eat with them. And so perhaps some of the questions about who's the sinner, what does it mean to welcome? Why is this grumbling happening? How does everybody in this audience feel about that grumble? How do those tax collectors and quote unquote sinners feel? Um, How do the Pharisees and scribes feel? And who might be irritated by what part of this passage would be different? Like what the scribe and Pharisee might be irritated by could be different than what the tax collector and sinner, whoever the kind of sinners are, are irritated by. And sinner is the word then used by this younger son. So he does all of this and he decides to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's the language that's being used in verse two about these people who are sinners as a label, um, hamartolos. So as a label, that's those who have missed the mark. And then when he tells himself a sinner, or when he says, I have sinned, he's saying, I have missed the mark. Um, So perhaps the younger son is meant to symbolize the tax collectors and sinners then, which then that perhaps is the offensive part to the Pharisees and the scribes is because, wait, we're supposed to be the younger son. We're the righteous ones. We're the Jacob. We're the, and you're saying that it's the younger sons are actually these tax collectors that you're with. Um, That's curious to me to think if that would have been frustrating to them that they're tracking with the younger son. Totally. Yeah. What was that? Yeah, I said totally. That that would be really frustrating. Um, but also, like, is is a is a parable meant to be frustrating for everyone who hears it? Because it could be frustrating for different reasons. Because if I am a common person who the religious establishment keeps calling unclean and unworthy and you know not righteous enough, there may be a part of me that's just like identifying with the early part of this, being like, yeah, those like. Those jerks never think we're good enough. They never offer us anything. They never make room for us. And yet they're supposed to. So maybe that's frustrating, but it's not frustrating about like, like I always pictured a parable like is meant to like question, like disrupt my place in the world. Whereas this seems to be almost affirming a place in the world. Like, you know, like almost like I, I, I like, and I see you in the midst of the the mess. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting question of um, remembering that it's a crowd and thinking what part would stick with different people in the crowd and what it means to hold it. Maybe it's not always frustrating that there's always going to be something that sticks with you, Hmm. but we might change our interpretation based on who's getting frustrated by it and what we're getting frustrated by and who we're identifying with in the story and in the audience. It's also interesting to think about how 
I think as my lived experiences change, hearing and reading the parable changes. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know that it can be a one size. It can't be one size fits all because the invitation is. It feels like the invitation is <laughs> dependent on really how you hear. And we hear based on a whole lot of stuff. Oh, okay. That's hitting at a key thing. Because how often for par- have parables for us gotten stuck in one interpretation? Mm-hmm. And how that how is a parable inviting us to have continued interpretations? And even as Jesus talks about the introduction to the parable of what's often called the parable of the Good Samaritan, he asks the teacher of the law, well, what's in the law? That's question one. And the question two is, how do you read it? And he invites us to consider how we're reading things, which seems to invite us to allow how we read things to shift and change. And a parable allows different entry points to those shifts and changes than sometimes other things do. And so can we allow the parable to keep speaking Mm -hmm. and to keep speaking different things? So Mm -hmm. uh, this is maybe a good point to recommend the book. Um, If you want to know more about the parables as a teaching method or different, like some of the Jewish context for parables, Instead of trying to come up with it myself, I'll just recommend Amy Jill Levine is a fantastic um, Jewish New Testament scholar. And she wrote a book on the parables that just is mind blowing. (laughs) Um, And so I just recommend that book for anybody who's curious more about kind of that Jewish context of parables and different interpretations of familiar parables that will just cause that how you read it question to be really different. So um, I think it's called Short Stories of Jesus is the title of the book. So she, as a part of her focus on this parable, actually names her. She doesn't think the father's meant to represent God. And that was a complete new thought to me. I've never had that interpretation before. Um, She throws out that that doesn't feel like that would um, make sense in her, in the context. And I was like, I don't think that means we can't interpret it as God, but it throws out this thing that I've never heard anyone say that causes a shift in, in reading. She also names in the, um, in the, she has an annotated new Testament with a note about this as well, that I'm just going to read out loud. The juxtaposed parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin that immediately precede this parable suggest that it is about something more or other than repenting, despite assertions, for neither sheep nor coins repent. The focus of the first two is on the search for the lost and the joy of finding. And so even that, I was like, oh, I've I've always thought the point of the parable was repenting, but what if it's about being lost and the joy of being found? because a coin and a sheep can't repent. Like what if the repentance, and this kind of goes with what Lisa was saying, what if the repentance of the younger son isn't the point? What if it wasn't even needed? Because it's just about being found again. Yeah, I think one of the powerful things, and I think we're kind of alluding to this, is asking the question like, where am I in this story? And I think it's really easy to place ourselves in the position of like the younger brother, sometimes the older brother. But I think like asking the question, like, what does it mean to be the, like the father in the story and the joy of finding and celebrating? Um, 
what does that look like in our communities? Especially if we very, I want to very, very carefully, but also very intentionally take what Lisa was seeing. And, you know, for those that have experienced homelessness or housing insecurity, for those that have been incarcerated, for those that have been addicted, for those who have found themselves in just horrible circumstances where through maybe fault of their own or maybe no fault of their own are not receiving help. Okay. How do we show up? Do we show up saying, man, while you were a long way off, I came running, you know, is that ever our perspective? Well, and it, if we free it up from being God, I also wonder if we can then be a little critical of the father and say, why didn't the father go searching instead of waiting? How did the father lose one of these two sons in the first place? Which son is lost? But then what is it? Because that's a whole question. Is it the younger son or the older son who's actually the one who's lost? But also then, how is the father missing it in some way to have lost something? Jesus says, if there's a lost sheep, I will go after it. There's not going to be any lost under me. But the father loses a son in the context of this parable. What's going on there that that can happen? Who in our lives have we lost? What does it mean to see them, to reach out for them, to go after them, to care for them so that they're not stuck in eating pig food? Well, or, I mean, actually, is it that the other son is the lost son? And it's not this younger one. Like, while this younger one did leave, is he lost? Is it his, like, I mean, I don't know, like, Jason, we were talking about it. Like you talked about the like the 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 ending part being such a like key part of this passage. The ending part is about the older son, mm-hmm. and the older son is behaving in a way that feels like what's ha- what's happening there. Like, or how are both sons lost? Maybe they're both. <laughs> maybe this father has lost both of their like both sons. Mm-hmm. Which that's really the story of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. There's a way Isaac loses both. Um, in different ways, Esau is stays but is bitter. <laughs> Jacob leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how can both be a version of being lost? So let's maybe let's focus on that elder son for a bit. I I when Lisa when you were reading it, I got caught in the language of how this younger son is being referred to by everybody in the parable. So in verse 27, so he calls one of the servants in 26. This is the older son. And he asks the servant what's happening. And verse 27, the servant says, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf. He has received him safe and sound. And he was angry and his father went out. So once again, we do see the father going out in both circumstances. The father is moving towards the sons before they finish moving towards him or even move at all. This older son didn't move at all. Um, but in verse 30, the older brother says, what? This son of yours. As soon as this son of yours. So what's he not doing? Not my brother. He's not calling this person, his brother. He's calling him his father's son. That's very intentional, different language. He's not saying my brother. He's saying your son. And then the father says in verse 32, your brother. 
So what is being missed by the older brother there that perhaps the father is even pointing him towards? I think he's saying that you guys are more alike than you think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. And say I, more I, about that. Well, I mean, I, I think, I think the, I think there's, there's a sense of like, you, you guys are both lost. You both missed it. You know, one of you thought running away was the answer and it wasn't. And then one of you thinks that staying was the answer and it, and it wasn't because you didn't appreciate it when you, when you had it and mm-hmm. you, you both have missed abundance. You both are living with scarcity. Um, I also think it's really beautiful because mm-hmm. if we're going to see this as like essentially this small little story that explains the entire Hebrew scriptures in a way, um, every conflict in the Hebrew scriptures is between some ancient relative and some distant cousin, you know, whether it's, you know, the descendants of Ham or whoever, or, you know, it's, it's all this conflict between people that were formerly related and now they find themselves in opposition. And so it's almost like here we are again with two brothers that are in conflict and it's like, yeah, but your brothers come on, you know, like, yeah, there's a way that that statement is like the book of Genesis. There, there is, the brothers do not get along in the book of Genesis. Someone is either killed or exiled over and over and over again. Um, Ishmael is exiled. Um, Cain is, or Abel is killed. Ishmael is exiled. Um, Jacob is exiled. Like there's this brother thing keeps coming up and now it's coming up in a parable. And we once again have a brother saying your son, not my brother. And the father's like, no, your brother. Mm-hmm. You- well, in some ways it's that if we cannot love the person who's next to us, who is closest with us, who is, we are sharing deep space and history and trauma and genetics with, if we cannot love that person, how, how will we love people that aren't in proximity to us? And in some way, it's just really striking. It feels like that in that tail end that there's this space for like, it doesn't matter whether you squandered it or you have it and don't feel like you have enough. That's, that's not the point. And I just think about how many families, spouses, partners, the split is over money. Like that just feels like that's a resonant, that's still resonant for how the thing that it, that, that does divide mm-hmm. us in really hard ways. Well, that, what if the, what if that thing that he says is really for all of us to hear about everything I have is yours? that yes, that's for the older brother, but also like, what if that's about a mindset of abundance of like, what are how are you seeing what you have? Um, because there will, there is enough to celebrate each other. There is enough to share with each other. There is enough to consider everyone, our brother and to celebrate and to be together and like, not have that scarcity mindset hinder our ability to see one another. And sometimes that scarcity mindset's coming from the person who leaves. Sometimes it's coming from the person who stays. But how does that rip us apart when we think the pie is limited? 
I also, with this older brother, am thinking about um, this other parable in Luke because he, in Luke, in verse 29, he's describing himself as I've never transgressed at any time, which reminds me of the, of the teacher of the law who talks to Jesus in that Mm -hmm. good Samaritan, because he says, yes, I have followed all of these since I was young. I did it all right. I did it all right. I've been focused on doing it all right. Um, And then, and then Jesus says, well, and then the, who's your neighbor question comes in that that's the question when someone thinks they've done it all right. The question is, how are you seeing your neighbor? Here, right, you there. can't do it all. You can't do it all right at the expense of your neighbor, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. goes. That feels like that goes back to Sabbath, and like it's for everyone, and that you can't take it. Uh, you can't make Sabbath happen for yourself at the expense of everyone else. Mm-hmm. And maybe what would feel disruptive or frustrating to all parties listening is this message of it's all for everybody. There is no divide between you. That could actually be equally yeah. frustrating. <laughs> because they don't, the Pharisees and scribes don't like the tax collectors and and sinners, but also the tax collectors and sinners don't like the Pharisees and scribes. There's a split there. And this parable is saying there's no split. Your brothers and everybody might walk away being annoyed with that. <laughs> yeah. What are we walking away thinking about on our walk home? I really appreciate that we asked that question about what are the communities of people in this story? How are they responding to one another? I I love the the idea of asking that question, like where were all these people that the younger brother ran to and you know he squandered all this money and made all these relationships and then they fell apart and there was no community to hold them up. Um, and yet the father's seemingly making room for him and bringing him back and yet his brother isn't. And it makes me ask the question or wonder, like, is there going to be a community that the older brother can come back to? Or is his way of seeing the world with such scarcity going to keep him from accepting the community that's around him waiting and wanting to celebrate and party with him, too? Um, And so, you know, it. it, You know, because it's really easy to, to judge basically both brothers and then and to keep them from the party you know, for different reasons, but what does it mean to bring people to the party? You know, if I'm, if I'm part hold of on, the Hold on, hold on, pause. You got it. That was just golden. It's really easy to judge both brothers and keep them both from the party. What does it mean to invite everyone to the party? Yeah. I just want to repeat that. Cause that was like, keep you going. said it great. Now we, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> That's what I'm left with. Mm -hmm. I'm left really thinking about how I've never seen until today's conversation, how much overlap there is with this parable and the Hebrew scriptures, like the story of two brothers, the story of leaving the story of famine. And it just makes me curious about all of the conversations or overlaps there could be there if you if you had if you had time to talk about all of the experiences of famine and how people deal with famine and how people deal with leaving and how people deal with inheritance um those are huge questions that have come before and there's a way Jesus seems to be like 
yeah, those are big questions, but also it's all about love. Um, and kind of going back to that simplicity again and again of like, don't miss the forest through the trees with all of those big questions, just love each other and welcome each other. And um, it does make me curious who I'm missing, who I'm, whether I'm keeping myself out of the party, whether I'm keeping other people out of the party, like what is it to just have that party and and not miss it by asking the wrong questions. Hmm. I think Which, I, oh, sorry, can I add something well, to that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes me think like, what if part of what Jesus is doing is trying to help the Pharisees ask a different question instead of saying this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. What if they had asked, how can we be at that table too? And what if that's the flip and the fr- he's doing is like, what if we all just ask to be at that table or all come to that table instead of judging who should be there? Hmm. All right. Sorry, Lisa, go ahead. No, it's okay. I I think I, there are moments in these stories that if I allow the vulnerable stuff to rise and I, then I recognize that I'm really more often than I care to be one of these two as sons. And it comes from these spaces of like not feeling loved or not, not believing that I'm worthy of it, that I'm a part of things or that I, like, I'm thinking with the older brother, like, the father's response is everything I have is yours. The son's question was like, why didn't you throw a party for me? And it's almost like this invitation where the father's like, well, if you wanted to party with you and your friends, do it. Like what you, you like, you're testing me in this space that I'm not going to live up to your expectations. And I, there's something in my patterning of, um, I think testing people like, do you love me? Am I enough? Will you pick me? that ends up where I actually am like, I wound myself, even though it mm. feels like everybody else is wounding me. Like I tell mm. that story, <laughs> but it's really, I'm doing it to myself. Cause I, I'm not starting from a place of knowing that I'm loved, that I belong mm. and that I'm worthy of that. And so there's, the story is incredibly intimate and vulnerable if I let it be. Mm. And there's something I think in the way that it has been taught to me that keeps it out here. So then it's not, I'm more judgy. And I'm like, well, you know, the father's the Lord. <laughs> and this is how the Lord receives me every day. <laughs> and I like, that's not super intimate for me. That actually feels a little bit fluffy because it doesn't. Um, I'm not wrestling when I sit with that. And so I, I. Yeah, I appreciate the wrestle with um, my own things the things that like oh yeah Lise you can still work on these things and you've come a long way and you still have to continue to talk nice to yourself mm-hmm. Lisa I really appreciate that because I think sometimes you know as I mentioned earlier we're asked where are we in this parable but what I hear you kind of asking and maybe I'm not maybe these words aren't accurate to what you just said but what if we're everybody in this parable because we're a complex human being that experiences multiple things at one time or goes through different seasons. Like what if we're both the younger son who is looking for community and we need to love ourselves like the father loves the son. And what if at the same time, we're not recognizing that everything is there for us and we've had it all along and we just need to go into the house and say, I'm ready to party. Like what if, what if we are everyone Mm 
in the story all at the same time, as opposed to just one of these per- people at a time. And maybe that's the most important sort of charge to give our listeners is to say one of the problems with this parable has been when we focus so much on this person who was lost has now been found, we make the parable done. Mm-hmm. This was this there is a before and after, and that's often been the story of Christianity that at some point falls short for people. Is this really strong before and after marker mm-hmm. of I was this way and now I'm this way because Jesus. And that's not actually how life feels. It's much more back and forth. And there's a way that we are always in the process of growing, in the process of learning, in the process of building those relationships. And the parables can invite us to keep processing those things if we allow them to be alive. And if we, like Lisa, are courageously vulnerable with it and like, okay, can I allow this to hit the tender parts? Can I allow this to not be a finished story in my life, but can I allow myself to wonder who am I today? How can I find that abundance today? How can I look for celebration and welcome today? How can I look for my belovedness today? How can I look for the belovedness of others today? How can I allow this parable to keep speaking to me and to others? And like this parable, it asks the question at the end, will you go to the party? Yes. I hope. I am a party. Let's go. (laughs) This has been a 40 Orchards podcast. At 40 Orchards, our mission is to create circles for all people to wrestle through biblical text so that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. We search through the lens of sacred possibility, assuming there is more to be discovered, questioned, and applied as we listen for how God is still speaking. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40, that's 40orchards.org. Our opening music is by Less FM. Our closing music is by NCR Music Vibes. Additional music is by 3Music. Any references to books or other sources can be found in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for searching the sacred.